Hey teachers, this is Shannon Betts with the Reading Teachers Lounge coming to you with episode 16 here in our fifth season. Let me give you a little background about this episode. Mary and I actually recorded this episode with a guest, Khadijah, who I met when I was still teaching during the first year of our podcast, uh, 2018 to 2019. I was um, taking a writer's workshop, personal development professional development training and Khadijah was the trainer that my district had hired to train um, all the literacy coaches and literacy teachers to come and learn from her and she was such an inspiration that I wanted to have her on the podcast um, because I knew that all of you would be inspired by what she's doing with her students and we recorded this episode back in May of 2019 and tragedy struck because the software that we used to record the episode recorded all three of our audio tracks on top of each other. The entire hour-long discussion was us talking over one another. You could not hear the difference between any of our voices. When a question was asked, when someone was answering it, it was a disaster and we just had to just stop the stop the recording I mean, we finished the recording, but we had to hold it in storage and just hope that maybe one day we would be able to use it, um, but we didn't have the capability at the time. Fast forward here to 2023, we have better editing software, and I figured out just recently how to finally salvage that episode. And so because we recorded it four years ago, it was... It was a surprise even to me of, you know, what we had talked about four years ago. We had started the episode talking with Khadijah, just asking her how does she balance up the variety of reading levels in her room. And it ended up morphing into a much richer, richer discussion about how to teach and reach diverse learners, how to um, implement trauma-informed teaching and all about using visual literacy as a scaffold to help a variety of learners be able to be successful in the classroom. You were going to love this episode. You were going to love Khadijah. She shared so much wisdom. She explains how to put all the things that we've been talking about into practice in detail. This is the way to actually implement these good practices with students in a way that doesn't burn you out, but in a way that helps your learners become successful. Khadijah has figured out how to meet the kids where they are and to focus on the learning needs of the students using data-informed instruction rather than just looking at the standards as the first way of approaching instruction. I hope you'll be inspired by this discussion as much as I was, and um, be sure to check out our show notes so that you can see how to connect with Khadijah on Instagram, because I know you'll want to keep in touch with her. Enjoy the episode. This is the Reading Teachers Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hi, Khadijah. Welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Hi, how are you? 
We're so happy to have you here with us tonight. I am very excited to be here. So um, we've invited you here to talk about a topic that um, is really relevant to me and to your classroom and to a lot of teachers that are listening, which is just supporting a variety, a wide range of reading levels in one classroom. Okay. And you um, do a really great job at doing that in your third grade classroom. And so um, can you take a second and just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your current teaching role? Yes. Um, I am a third grade teacher um, for Cobb County Schools. Um, I work in a Title I area. Um, I deal with, um, in my classroom specifically, uh, I have about four different levels. Um, that's reading and math, um, four different learning levels. Um, I have students who are just brand new to the country, students who've been here for a year or more, and then English proficient students. Um, I have a wide array of learning styles and uh, also a lot, um, a lot of children in my class uh, dealing with trauma, um, which has been my focus for the last two years is uh, creating um, pedagogy uh, that is trauma-informed. Wow. That's really, that's amazing. How many students do you have in your class, Khadija? I have 28 students and then I have a special ed push-in. So uh, in a given day, I'll have 29 students that I am um, instructing. And we, right. I'm and sorry, in my class, we also have a dual taught model. So I have two teachers. It was me and, and, uh, and I'm the EIP teacher in my classroom. Um, and then I have a gen ed teacher in my classroom and we both share the duties. Um, um, we both come up with lessons. Uh, so it's, it's two teachers in one classroom. Yeah. Like two certified yes. teachers in one classroom. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I, um, so some of our listeners are not from Georgia and I believe EIP is kind of a term that we use in Georgia. So can you explain that part a little bit? Um, EIP is early intervention plan. And this is for students who are showing um, one at uh, two or more levels levels below uh, reading or math, um, two grade levels. Um, so a student who is reading on a kindergarten or first grade level, um, uh, or has a math proficiency level of kindergarten or first grade, um, kindergarten first or second grade. So I specifically um, do interventions with students. And then we have a program called R RTI, Response to Intervention, where we're doing the interventions and then we're tracking the data. So the students are tested with their milestone test, which is their standardized end of the year um, standardized test and their uh, reading inventory or their math inventory. And that determines whether or not they um, will go into an EIP program. And schools that have EIP students get um, specific funds to address those um, deficits. Right. Yeah. They're, they're underlying needs and then you get specialized curriculum or um, more teacher support, professional support. Great. Okay. Um, and so Khadija, you said that you have, about 28 students in your class, um, and then the special ed push-in. And so, and you had said you had four different learning levels. So about 
how many students are at each level out of those 28? I have, um, I'm sorry, I have, um, I have four right now who are IELTS. Those are students who do not speak any English. They were just here uh, less than a year um, in the country. Then I have um, about six, I think, and I'm trying to think. I've been fasting all day, so I'm trying to think. Um, come up. Um, I have about six that are on a first grade level. Um, and they started off at like a kindergarten, ending kindergarten level in the beginning of the year. They're right now first emerging second. So that we're, we're getting, they're almost to second. Um, then we have um, about five, between five and seven are on a second grade level. They started off about beginning first grade. They're now sec, mid second grade level. Um, so it. As we are doing our interventions and we're tracking the data, depending on the standard, their um, their levels will fluctuate. But we're we're on a consistent, um, I would say, begin middle second grade level. Um, and right now we're doing DRA, which is the um, reading uh, inventory that we use. And so it they have to do a written portion of it. So students may fall anywhere between middle to um, beginning second grade level because of the written responses. Um, but their running records will be midway. So can you hear me? Okay. So um, I have about same for math, about four okay, different levels. Yep. So in a given day uh, on the weekends, I'm doing lesson plans for about four different levels, anywhere from kindergarten to um, fourth grade. And I say fourth grade because I'm extending them. And so some of the standards will be fourth, fourth grade extension. So the ELA standards will match more closely to fourth grade than it will to third grade because that's what the level they're Do reading. Do you have about. any kids um, on or above grade level? I Yes, I have in my class anywhere from kindergarten to um, above grade level. So I'm dealing with a wide array of, of different learning levels. They wonder why teaching is such a hard profession <laughs> and why you really need your summer. Oh, it is It is often stressful. Yes. And on top of that, I do have children who deal with um, adverse trauma. So we have a lot of, we, I have about eight behaviors in my class that I have also. Wow. Okay. That's, yeah, I think that's really important to touch on too, because um, when you have students who are dealing with trauma, they um they aren't always available to take in the information that you're presenting them. So how do you how do you address that in your classroom? Well, I mean, that's been a real passion of mine the last 2 years um is uh creating uh, multimodal instruction and visual liter literacies um to strengthen cognition in students who have developmental problems due to their trauma because often what I was seeing was these children were either not being addressed at all being ignored or being funneled into special ed uh, programs, which is not really addressing their issues. So we had, uh, I had in my classroom, kids that had auditory deficits, um, that had um, 
connection. They couldn't uh, connect information. They had processing issues. So I started to notice a common theme. These were children who were coming from homes that had a lot of trauma, um, children who were homeless, children who had neglect, um, emotional or physical um, abuse, emotional or physical children in foster care. Um, and so I started to connect the dots. And so I went out and sought to find what could address these issues. And the first thing I looked at was special ed um, interventions, which is um, actually there's a, a, there is a lot of knowledge there that we can use in a gen ed classroom when it comes to interventions for um, deficits like that. So I... I'm so glad you said it that way. I think that you know, a lot of times, you know, people want to know, oh, what's the magic wand for special education? Well, it's really just best teaching practices. If you're going to use an intervention, it's usually something that will benefit most of the children in the class. So it's not going to hurt anybody. That's right. Good for you. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, it's okay. Um, And what I noticed was, as I was addressing the trauma, um, the children with trauma in my classroom, the same lessons could address my ESOL students. So I started to notice mm-hmm. that there was a connection between language acquisition and content um, and cognition and visual literacies, multimodal mm-hmm. instruction, um, hands-on instruction. So I started to do research and I noticed, uh, and I, I, I know this is going to set off something in you because I know one of your podcasts was about this, but zone of proximal development. And it was a light bulb that went off because understanding that these children's zone of proximal development was different and all the standards assumed that everybody started off at the same zone of proximal development. They were ready for the same level of independence or interdependence that uh, children who hadn't experienced or who didn't have language acquisition problems, issues um, were dealing with. But what I found out was that I had to address where they were starting. I had to first find out where they were starting at and then build lessons to get them where I needed them to be. And the best way to do that was visual literacies and multimodal instruction uh, to help them to connect to the information. For instance, if I was doing weathering erosion and deposition, I created the scenarios with sand and ice and, and straws to get them to understand why, why was this creating this. So if I was teaching cause and effect with weathering and erosion, they couldn't get that connection because they hadn't, they didn't have the background knowledge to understand. But by developing a lesson where there was hands-on, multimodal, they were able to connect their understanding, connect what they knew to the standard. So they were able to understand it. And so I started to see in my classroom, the children become more engaged and they're learning, Mm -hmm. um, I was strengthening their learning because I was strengthening their their cognition. I wasn't just feeding them the information. They were experiencing the information. Um, And with that experience, experience, they were building stronger connections to um, their knowledge base and what I was teaching them. Um, So once I started to notice that, my whole um, classroom changed. I built a 360 classroom for math where they go on whiteboards to solve problems, where they are the instruments in their learning and they're actually teaching me what they know and then I'm guiding them through their own learning. Doing that 
help them to understand the importance of their learning, but also help them to be able to, and to participate in their learning. Um, because what we see as, as lack of engagement is actually um, just the, their lack of understanding and their lack of understanding of how to get, how to communicate that lack of understanding also. Um, so I got a lot more engagement, a lot more communication, um, and a lot more participation in their learning by creating a classroom that, that uh, fostered multimodal and visual literacies. I love that you're um, talking more about this, um, the multimodal and visual literacy, but I, um, I'm, I'm imagining that I think I know what visual literacy is, but can you kind of take us down the path of what visual literacy looks like in your classroom? Because I'm, I'm on board, especially because I know that when I'm working with students who are on the autism spectrum or who, you know, are highly visual kids, which I think a lot of our students now are highly visual, um, that they really benefit from um, the visual component. Whereas I feel like when we were growing up and experiencing school and the parents of these children, we were more um, of an auditory-based learning environment. So can you just elaborate a little bit about your visual literacy? Okay. So um, for instance, in grammar, um, I might take a photograph and have them label the verbs and the nouns. So I'm using picture references to start off the unit so that they are understanding how the concept fits into the real world. Um, because children learn through visual. They are visual learners as children. And we develop um, other type of learning styles as we get older and as we're exposed to different um, strategies and information. Um, but what I learned was most children um, are still in the visual phase of their learning. And we often ignore that you can enrich a learning experience by just showing a picture, by just having them experience the picture, communicate about a picture. So visual literacies um, in writing and in reading and even in math, we use it in math. Um, we have them look at a picture model, arrays. So Common Core Math, um, has them look at arrays for multiplication, arrays for division. That's visual literacy. You're looking at it in a, its visual form. But I think the transfer to ELA was a little more difficult because how do you get them to learn ELA concepts with pictures? Um, so in my classroom, if we're learning about adjectives and adverbs, um, if we're learning about colorful language, we'll look at a picture. Um, I will compare a black and white picture to a color picture. Why is colorful language important? What does it do? Why do we need it in our writing? Um, so they're looking at the black and white picture and they're seeing that it's kind of boring. It doesn't show you the true essence of a sunny day or a summer day or a day in the park. Um, and then they, I take the same picture in, in color and they start to see why colorful language is important inside of um, a, a story. Or they might create a story based on a wordless picture book. Uh, so they have a picture book and the, the words are not there. So the story is determined by them. What I found out was that their creativity is so inspired when they can see the picture because they don't often have, again, with the zone of proximal development or the background knowledge or the schema to really 
create pictures in their own mind. So if you give them the opportunity by giving them pictures and guiding them with pictures, um, then you're enriching the learning experience. So I use a lot of picture references for science and social studies, for writing, for and reading. Um, when we're doing inferencing, I'll have them um, look at a picture and then I'll take the picture away and I want them to describe the picture. Now infer where this picture or what time this picture was happening or something like that. And it gets them to understand what, what inferencing is. Um, so I use a lot of visual representation in the class for each unit. And I start off with that so they can build that understanding. And then we go into um, the more common uh, instructional methods. But we're, we're leaning a lot in my classroom on picture references and, and, liter and visual models. That's so fascinating to me because we're talking here about how to differentiate and balance a classroom when you have just such a wide range of levels. And what it sounds to me like you're doing is when you're, it's, it starts at the unit and lesson planning level where you are, and you're starting with what language do I want the students to use? What background knowledge do they need? Mm -hmm. And then you're teaching the thinking and the standards from there. Yeah. I do a, a lot of backwards uh, lesson planning. So um, I start off with what I want them to know, and then I go backwards from there, building the pieces. Um, and throughout the process, there's always uh, visual literacies or multimodal. And so you weave those into every lesson that you're doing? And, every lesson, yeah. And I guess yeah. you're and it's, starting it's, to get a lot of resources and build like a resource, a visual literacy resource library. Yeah. I mean, what I've found, um, graphic novels is a really good um, resource, too, because a lot of my non-readers um, have become really uh, enthusiastic readers um, this year because I exposed them to graphic novels and had them write based on graphic novels. Um, so the students who hated books, I hate books, I hate reading. Um, it's boring. When I introduce them to graphic novels like... Um, what is the, I can't think of the name of the book now. Um, but there's a lot of um, graphic novels that go on that are for different levels. So you have second grade graphic novels, third grade graphic novels. And what I noticed was when I introduced them to books with a lot of pictures, they started to love books and it, it also increased their literacy. So they were able to communicate what they were reading because the picture was giving them ideas that maybe they didn't understand with the words. So they started to also their language acquisition, um, their using of context clues. So they were able to look at the picture, look at the word, look at how it was used in the sentence and start to really build an understanding of vocabulary. So um, and that was just with graphic novels, uh, which is another vis visual literacy. Um, and that was I'm able to address all of my learners in one classroom because everybody can look at a picture and get a different understanding of it depending on their level. And they communicate based on their level. So it was it was a real um, eye opener for me because it was a struggle before. How do I address all of these different learners? Um, it was absolutely stress stressful um, until I started to introduce that. And I, I don't have to do you know thirty different lessons or differentiation doesn't mean get a kindergarten um, worksheet and a first grade worksheet. It's have them look at this picture and give them different organizers or 
just a blank sheet of paper and they interpret it the way they want to. So some of them are drawing pictures, some of them are simple sentences, and some of them are more complex sentences. But it's always based on a, a picture or something. Right, the task uh, can be ramped up or ramped down very easily because everybody's using the same picture. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm... Right. Because I'm in the classroom too, I'm trying to like really picture how this, what this looks like on a daily basis. So can you walk us through a typical literacy period in your classroom, whether it's reading or writing or if they're combined and sort of, is this happening in a whole group? Is this happening in small group? Is it both? What does your day look like? And when are you using these pictures with the students and how? Okay. So, um, We are, right now I'm integrating social studies into uh, ELA, writing and reading. Okay. So um, I will have, so we had a picture um, of a normal day with, uh, in the colonial times. So in this picture, there were people on the farm, people um, fishing, people, weaving cloth. And so in this picture, um, I used the picture to, uh, start their writing unit. So they had to write a narrative based on, uh, a day in the life of a colonial kid. Um, so they read all the, so I could read all the information, but they still wouldn't be able to connect to it. And then again, my non-readers and my students who didn't speak English would not understand it at all. So we started off with a picture and they started to, some of them were simple sentences sentences based on what's going on in the picture. Some of them were more complex sentences based on what's uh, going on in the picture. And they always have an, some type of organizer. And so then we start to write the nouns and the verbs in the picture. Um, so why we start off with the nouns and the verbs? Because we can build our sentences based on simple um, nouns and verbs. Um And this was for, I'm sorry if I didn't mention this, this was for their writing, for their narrative writing. And so then after we build the, after we notice the nouns and verbs, we start to add the adjectives and adverbs. For my high high students and my own level students, then they start to to construct their sentences. They start to add pieces in and they start to build their paragraphs. Um, So it was, you know, dear diary, um, today I was, um, I went and helped my father on the farm. Um, and it started off with something simple like that. And they kept referring back to the picture to see what that looks like. Okay. So right there, he looks like he's digging in the ground. What is that? What is that like? And so they would start to describe that, but, um, they always have the picture on their desk next to them and it's displayed on the smart board. And then that's a, um, usually we start off with, um, of course, a normal writing, um, workshop, uh, time where I'm doing a 20 minute mini lesson, give them instructions of what they're supposed to do. And then we display the picture and the pictures on their desk so they can look through it. And then they have the um, 30 to 40 minute writing time. Um, so as they're writing, um, I'm going around um, and looking at the students to see what they're doing, asking them if they need any guidance. And then I also pull two small groups. So I pull my tier three, this is RTI, these are the students who are three or four grades, three grades below. So they are pre-K kindergarten right now. Um, and I will pull them. And then um, my IELs. So those are the students who don't speak English at all. 
and they're still writing based on the sentence. And they have what's known as a sentence pyramid. And so they will construct the sentences based on a sentence pyramid. They'll start off with one simple word and then they'll build upon that. And I do that the same thing with my tier three students. Um, so then once we're finished with that 40 minute um, writing time, 30 to 35 to 40 minute writing time, then we share out. And so in the share out time, um, they have to explain how the picture helped them um, to write their sentences or write, formulate their ideas. Um, so again, they're referencing the picture um, and some students would like to go up to the board and point to, well, this part helped me um, write this sentence and they go back directly to the sentence. And if the students, if my, some of my students are not secure sharing, they have what's called Seesaw, which is a video platform where they video record their ideas. And so they'll again, show the picture and they'll reference back to it. Um, that's my, uh, writing lesson. Um, and I love that explaining is, how the picture helped them. Cause that is like such good metacognition. Yeah. So just had to say that real quick. Okay. Right. Go to reading. <laughs> So reading is also very similar. Um, right now we did a wordless picture book um, and it's called um, um, Speechless, I think the word the book is called. Um, and it's a book about um, a colonist who um, finds a runaway slave in her shed and she has to, um, she is helping him to um, hide in the shed, she's feeding him. The kids, my students had no idea what the story was about, but the pictures were great um, tie-in to the colonies. So I used the pictures from that book. Um, and it's in sepia color. So it's brown and cream colors. So it's not very colorful. So they get an understanding of what, it, you know, kind of the mood of the story based on the um, colors. Um, and then, so we go through the book. They, all they do is look at the pictures. So it's, it's a sequence based on the pictures. So then um, if I'm having them do retail or if I'm having them do beginning, middle, and end, I might have them just look at the pictures and map out what happens in the beginning of the story, in the middle of the story, and then the end of the story according to what they think based on just the pictures. Um, and I did a wordless picture book because we've learned all the standards. We've gotten all of the strategies. Um, well, I've taught all the standards and I've taught all the strategies. Now I want to see how they're interpreting it. So with the wordless picture book, um, instead of doing a read aloud, I'm just asking them to look at the picture. And it's completely silent and they're sitting on the carpet and I'm just turning the pages of the book. And as I'm turning the pages of the book, they're taking notes. Because instead of me reading, there's no sound. So they have that time to write down notes. So they're writing in their BME um, chart. And again, depending on the level of the student, you'll have simple sentences or very, you know, more complex sentences. And so what I get from that is the students are engaged in their own thinking and their own schema. So they're connecting to just the pictures. There's no words. So a lot of the, the graphic organizers came out completely different, but they were on um, the same idea. This is they got the same idea. This is a colonial girl in colonial times, and this is what's happening. Um, they understood it in the picture. There's somebody hiding in the shed, but some of them said a criminal, and some of them said a scared person, just looking at the picture. So it's just looking at how they're interpreting 
the pictures. And then um, I paired that with another text that I read and they were able to see how the pictures really helped them understand the story. So by starting first with the wordless picture book, with just the pictures, just depending on the pictures for understanding, they started to be able to tie in why illustrators write pictures the way they do, why the expression is the way it is on a, a, a character's face, um, why did the uh, illustrator emphasize this particular thing over this. And so when I get to the paired text, when I get to the text with words, they're really engaged in, oh, that's why that looks like that. Or this is, they're engaged, um, they're understanding a lot deeper um, how the illustration and the words tie in. Um, so again, using that, that those visual literacies. Um, Khadija, I, I'm so uh, like enamored with this whole style, but I'm also really curious um, as to how you're finding these sources and resources. So when you're planning your lessons, um, do you have access to these uh, through your curriculum or are you like seeking them out on your own? So um, recently Cobb County has upped their game with their resource, um, uh, mm-hmm. their resources. Um, so I, a lot of the stuff that I already had, they're now, they now <laughs> have gotten, but I'm, I'm a person that does, I'm constantly researching and constantly looking for new ideas and, and how. So I read a lot of articles. I listen to a lot of podcasts and then I'm a Pinterest freak. And I'm, um, I don't depend a lot on Teachers Pay Teachers because a lot of stuff I create myself, but um, Teachers Pay Teachers, uh, Pinterest, and then a lot of research. So when I started off with trying to figure out what, what the kids needed, I noticed that the same theme kept repeating. It was, you know, hands-on visual models. Um, and so I started to look at the standards and then pair that with what the research was saying. And so then I started to create lessons that were, um, fed, had both of those in it. Um, but what I found also on Pinterest was a lot of people already had, um, like the wordless picture books. Um, there's a book called, um, journey. Um, and he's the guy that wrote that book. Um, he has written a tr- uh, three books, um, and they're all wordless. And inside of his books, he does a lot of different colors to emphasize things. So instead of using words, he's using colors. So something will be purple or red, and you have to just look at the little nuances of the pictures. And so when I saw that, like people had already started to get on board with uh, visual literacies and there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of books on it. And so I just started to, you know, feed that into what I had already researched and what I already knew. The guy that wrote journey was Aaron Becker. Um, But um, once you start searching for, or you start searching for one thing, it feeds you into other things. Um, Once I did that, I just, took my backwards unit plans that I had and I started to just um, take all the books that I had and, and I literally just spread them out on the floor and looked at which ones I could, you know, uh, fit into my lesson. And it took about, I, mean, I would say a good, it took about two years for me to just get lessons that were 
Um, and I'm still developing them. I'm still working on them because I get new students every year and I get new, um, struggles every year. So, um, just a lot of research, um, and, and the common resources, Pinterest, um, and then just a lot of sweat and tears (laughs) and my own desire to, to, to service this group of kids, this kind of kid. Oh, it just makes me think how lucky the students are that are in your classroom. It just sounds so supportive and interesting and fascinating. And I, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. And I really appreciate that you were able to kind of walk us through how you plan your lessons and how you spread the books out on the floor and look through things. Because I think a lot of teachers really do need to hear um, that that's sort of the level that it takes and you have to really kind of think outside of the box and think about what your students need. Um, and, and that's what Shannon and I keep preaching, um, again and again and again, because the curriculum guide, um, is such a small box for so many of our students, especially the ones that face extra additional challenges, whether those are academic challenges or trauma challenges or, um, language challenges, social issues. Um, yeah, I, I find this to be super fascinating. Yeah, we teach, we teach children, not curriculum. And that's what you're explaining is how you figured out how to do that. You're weaving the curriculum in and all the standards in, but you're starting at the student level and you're starting at the language level. And I just love that because you've set up an environment where your students can be successful. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, was passionate about it because of my hyper sense of social justice. Um, I, I take it personally. I take teaching personally. I always think about it like, how would I want my child addressed in a classroom? And I want to be that teacher for the children that are in my classroom. Um, in my classroom, my students are my kids. And it's hard. It's, it's extremely difficult at times but also very reward, rewarding because when they get it, you understand that this is not a learner who has is defined by their deficits, but this is a learner who, if you give them just the right type of lesson and the right amount of time, can reach heights that you never expected um, and can do things that you would be surprised about. Um, often I grade and I'm like, wow. <laughs> Wow. And it makes you feel like you're teaching something. And I think that we get so caught up in teaching the standard and teaching the way that the pacing guide says that we forget that we're teaching human beings. This is not feeding information into a computer or a database. You are feeding into a mind, which is palliable. And it's, 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 it's different. Each child is different. So how do you address that in your classroom? And I think the fun part is figuring that out. Um, and, and it's like breaking a code. It's like cracking a code, um, figuring out how to get to the kid who is extremely unengaged and most often violent. How do you reach that kid? And to see that kid sitting down and writing um, a paper or doing their work, it's like beautiful. Or when they come up to you and say, this was really fun. Um, I like this. Can we do more of this? That's the point at which I know that I'm doing something that is really changing um, this kid's world and, and in essence, changing the world. Um, I went to a conference and um, 
one of the teachers said, I won't be one of those cliche teachers that says they got into teaching to change the world. And then I stood up and I said, I got into teaching to change the world. And I found out that I could do it one classroom at a time. So once I figured out that I can do this in my own classroom, I said, you know what? I got to share this information because this is, this will make you feel better about your day-to-day teaching. It'll make, it'll take away all of that uh, feeling like you're not enough or you're not doing enough um, feelings of failure that we feel as teachers constantly. Um, when you realize that there's just, we just have to tweak the way we're teaching and not change it completely, but just tweak it. Uh, just add in a few things and you'd be amazed at the results. Um, and so that was my passion. I, I mean, that's my passion now is just sharing what I found out in my classroom and making sure that every teacher knows that that kid sitting in the corner can be reached too. And, and you're not a failure um, and you're not doing it wrong. It's just that we just got to figure out how to reach the children that we have in our classroom. And every classroom is different every single year. And so how do we create lessons that reach every child? You know, I have to comment on something that you have not said, which I very, very, very much appreciate, but not once have you said this child is do you know, um, acts out this way because of the trauma that they've experienced or because of blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really matter because that's nothing that we can change. We can only reach them where they are um, right in that moment. And um, I think that so many teachers get caught up in in the things that they cannot change or the things that they can't address or things that are put upon them, which is, you know, human nature. But um, I think if you're able to kind of step back and take a wide lens view, you do kind of recall these are children who don't have a say in a lot of their day-to-day experiences, Um, but they do have a say and they do have power in the learning that they can put into the work in your classroom. And so if you give them that opportunity, all children want to shine. They, they want to, that's, that's a human condition. And so, um, I, I'm just, I'm so impressed with, um, your ability to communicate that because I think that is the reason that many teachers went into teaching is to make an impact, um, you know, share the gift of knowledge Um, because education can change the world. Um, But I do also believe that there's a current culture right now that um, is, it it doesn't prioritize education um, in a way that um, is consistent everywhere. And um, that can be really frustrating and challenging for teachers in a number of different arenas. I agree. I mean, I think that my first year teaching at um, elementary school, I remember reading one of the questions on, um, we used to have what's called SLOs, and I don't know what the acronym means. Um, but these were tests that they used to give. SLOs, right? We called them SLOs um, for short. <laughs> yeah, and it's like um, student learning objectives, but it was sort of a test that students needed to Yes. Right. So these were tests that they gave twice a year. They gave it twice a year. But I remember reading on one of the tests questions about a ski slope. And I just remember thinking to myself, 
what mm-hmm. do these kids know about a ski slope? And the question itself was so frustrating because I'm like, right then the kid is like, first I got to figure out what a slope is. Most of these kids have no idea what skiing is because they don't read um, frequently. They don't have books, access to books that would allow them to understand what a ski slope is. And you're asking them the question or to formulate an idea about a ski slope. There's no snow in Georgia. So they're not skiing. Right. So it's, it's a biased question. And I think that was, it wasn't a reading test. It was a background knowledge test. Right. So that was my frustration was how, how in the world are they supposed to meet a standard that already they can't understand? Like, and again, how do I teach ski slope when in an area where they don't even get snow, where they don't, they can't afford to ski. Um, how do I teach that? Um, so I think that we, as educators, we're pushed to teach to the standard. Teach, we, they say don't teach to test, but then they test, the test matters and it determines your ability as a teacher. It, you look at it as did this teacher, was, the, was this teacher successful based on these test scores? So, I mean, just recently we finished the milestones and a lot of teachers got their, their initial scores back, the, the Lexile measure. So it told us which students will have to test, retest, because their Lexile level was too low. But, and the teachers, I mean, some teachers were just freaking out. They were like, oh my gosh, look how many students I have. I was walking around like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Because it was the students that I knew already. Um, but also I knew that this does not measure what I did in my class, how well I did it in my class, um, or the student's ability. But because we emphasize this test so much, a lot of teachers' anxiety was, was, went up because they, that's all we, that's all we think about is, are they going to pass the test? Did they do well on the test? Um, and I think once I got out of that mindset, I was able to, really think about what my kids needed and able to and 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 help to help them learn. I didn't want to just teach them to pass a test which is strategies, but I wanted them to learn, to enrich their experience and and to enjoy being learners. Um so I think the mindset has to shift. What am I trying to do in my classroom? What is the end goal? Do I want to create kids who have a love of learning? or who know a few strategies to pass a test. Um, And I think that the latter is better. You have to create a love of learning because that's the only way you're going to uh, get them to persevere through school um, in the environment that I have, um, that I teach in, I mean, but also to to really strive to to, uh, be good at it. Um, It's something that I think is often missed. Like, it's it's important to pass the test, yes, but if we're teaching kids to get anxious because the test is coming up and not anxious when we're we're learning, you know, or not excited when we're learning, not anxious, but not excited when we're learning, then there's something missing. Learning should be exciting. Learning should be about creating excitement um, and excitement about showing what they know. Um, so I, I think for me, that's, that's my passion is just trying to create environments where kids are excited about showing what they know about showing what they learned. Um, 
and getting involved and participating in their own. I'm learning. so glad you're doing that. I'm so glad you're doing that, but it takes courage. I mean, like it, it's almost revolutionary what you're suggesting in this current environment of accountability. Yeah. You know, yeah. to really meet the kids where they are, give them what they need and kind of just say, not I'm going to ignore the test scores, but I'm going to focus on the kids learning. And I feel like today, um, most of the focus is on the teaching and not the learning. Yeah. And you're keeping yourself focused on the learners and the students in your room are just so blessed to have you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but again, I think I can do that because I can prove that it's working, you know, because um, any administrator is going to be like, yeah, it does work. But people don't trust it. You know, like people, a lot of people are too scared to try it because we're told so much else. And teachers are a lot of rule followers, you know, and so we want to do what we're told a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's I will say, I mean, it's not I have I have a very good relationship with my administrator. I have a very good, he trusts me. Um, he trusts me a lot. So I'm able to do a lot because he trusts me and he knows that I'm, I'm, I'm doing what's needed for the students. But in an environment where you don't have that, you have to have the proof behind it. You have to have the research behind it. And I'm a person that has all the research. Um, and I encountered it. I had an experience where I had to prove that I knew what I was doing. And I brought all my folders in and all my data and it, it shut everybody up because it was like, I can't say anything. This is, this is, um, data. This is research. I have nothing else to say. And just making sure they understand, you know what you're talking about. So whenever I'm doing this, I'm coming from a background of research. I'm coming from a background of, of data. Um, I'm always assessing my students in the sense that before I decide what they need to know, I'm assessing first. Um, I, I look at where they are, um, where I need them to be, and I fill in the middle. Um, and I think because I do that, um, administrators can trust that I know what I'm doing. Um, it's a lot of work in the beginning, but once you start doing it, it just becomes routine. And then, you know, I think they, the administrators will leave you alone once you prove that you know what's best for the, stu the students and you're doing what's best for the students. And then the data that proves that they're growing in the interim. Um, so I always have growth. I always show growth, even with my lowest students. I had a student who was ESOL student who spoke no English, brand new in the country. She started off on a level A and ended the year on a level M. Um, when the average student goes three levels, um, jumps three levels in a year, that's the expectation for uh, the standards. But she ended up jumping um, from an A, A to an M. Um, and they were like, how did you do it? And I was like, I, I, I trusted the student to tell me what they needed. Um, I assessed and then I focused on what the student needed, not what um, the standard said. So I enriched her based on where she was. Um, so knowing where they are and knowing where I wanted to take her. And thankfully she got there. I think that that is um, relevant to a lot of our listeners, not only in just how you can move your students from point A to point B, but if you are um, a first year, second year teacher, um, or even if you are, you know, in your 15th year and you still feel like you're struggling, you also can 
take an inventory of your own practices and start making some baby steps and think about where you want to grow as an educator as well. Um, And as you start to model that for yourself, um, your students actually notice that as well. And I think that it starts to grow and you can build that up. And it's also reasonable to give yourself two to three years to reach a level where you feel um, stronger and more competent, especially as the kids change from year to year. There's um, a lot of growth happens. And I think the growth also happens over the summer after you learn to reflect a little bit on your own practices and think about what you do want to teach in those moments too. So um, I love that you have been so open about sharing this whole journey for yourself because it, it is possible and it is a lot of hard work, but you know, teaching is hard work. (laughs) That's what we do. Yeah. And I want to say that as a, I mean, I'm, I'm brand new in a sense to elementary, right? I've only been doing it for four years. The biggest thing that I think that teachers need to know is that don't get so scared of or insecure about your own lack of understanding that you don't get out there and learn. Yeah. Um, professional development, whether it's offered by your school or it's something that you seek on your own is necessary. I mean, I have done professional development year round and usually most often it's self um, motivated. Like it's not something my school is offering. Um, but I still ask questions. Um, even though I can speak about different topics, topics, I don't know everything. And I still have teachers that I go to and I'm like, this, what do you think about this? I still, I'm not afraid to say, I don't know. I'm not afraid to say, um, I need to figure that out because I think in doing that, I'm opening myself up to the knowledge instead of closing myself off. Um, and I think that's important for, for first year teachers to understand that one, like you said, it's going to take a while. Um, cause it took me three years, um, and two years of just hard work, but, um, also you're a constant learner. I'm still a constant learner. I'm still, in, I'm still finding new things and new learners are coming to my classroom. So being open to that and, and never being afraid to say, I don't know, or trying to figure it out or trying to find out. Um, I think I'm confident in what I do know. And that comes across when I speak, but then I'm also confident in what I don't know. So, um, I'm, it's okay to say, let me figure that out. Or let me go look at that and let me go research that. Um, Because you're going to need it. Every year is going to be something different. um, Khadija, one of the things that I love teaching um, students who, especially who come to me with a new diagnosis of dyslexia or who are really struggling and you can tell that their self-esteem has taken a hit, I, I offer up a big secret. And I say that the secret is the smartest people in the classroom are the ones who ask the best questions. And it's never um, bad to ask a question and to help clarify and help understand. There's no such thing as a bad question. And that takes a lot of courage for people to ask that. But um, often if it's modeled for children, it goes a really long way. I, I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like overall, Kadisha, you are 
teaching your students how to think. And you're also modeling the learning process for them because you're a constant learner. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, because I think that it's the thinking that helps you rise above your situation. You know what I mean? It's it's the working it out in our minds. I, I My philosophy is these kids don't need your sympathy. They need your empathy. So they need strategies to figure out how to navigate through their world because we can't fix it. Um, and we can't um, change anything in their life, but we can teach them how to navigate through their world. Whatever socioeconomic um, status you have, every child needs to learn how to navigate through their learning and their world. So I think that's the biggest theme in my classroom is how do we think through any problem? How do we think through any um, any type of understanding? Um, so I do a lot of uh, lessons that stimulate thinking. Um, and stimulate communication because I think that's the biggest thing for me is literacy and for different people literacy might mean different things but I think literacy at its heart is the understanding and the ability to communicate your understanding completely Um, agree so for me and that's building relationships yeah right um so for me the com- being able to com- uh, communicate your understanding is also a large component because in communication, you can advocate for yourself, you can express yourself. And does it didn't matter where I taught high school, middle school, or elementary, that was one thing that was missing is the communication component. So the understanding was missing, but the communication was also missing. So when they did, when they did start to understand, they failed to communicate it um, because they weren't sure. Or they got caught up in, is this the best way? Do I really know this? Um, so I do a lot of um, lessons that, like you said, promote thinking and cognition, um, the experience of learning, not just the me feeding them um, information, but them experiencing learning. So building lessons that help them to experience it. Um, so that it builds that literacy. I think that my school district has different breaks than your school district. So can I come see your classroom one day? No, next absolutely. school year for We're sure. The year, but next year, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Um, I would love that. Um, and again, <laughs> I like critical feedback. I'm not one of those people that like. I don't need glows and grows. If you come to my classroom, just be like, listen, I really like this, but I really didn't like this. Uh, so no, I just want to bask. Like, just- I want to bask in the glow of your classroom and your teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's kind of mine too. But you know, Khadija, Khadija I think that um, that brings me to a question that I had originally, and that is, um, you know, I can tell that like you are a super reflective practitioner, you know, like Shannon and I, and um, what is one thing that you are like looking forward to trying better for next year? Is there anything that you've thought of yet? Are you still kind of in the moment? And um, Yes, I have. I've actually, I'm one of those, I spend a lot of money on books, mm-hmm. um, which my husband hates. Um, but um, <laughs> don't we all? It's really tough. <laughs> right. <laughs> conferencing with students, whether it's reading or writing, um, 
I've learned that because I'm a good speaker and because I articulate very well, that oftentimes I don't allow the students to speak in the, on their own terms. Like I'm always trying to pull it from them. And so just learning how to sit back and allow them to communicate with me. Um, I think that that's, I'm building more next year. I'm looking forward to building more of a communicative classroom where the students um, communicate, um, not necessarily their understanding, but just communicate um, their process more because they can communicate. I've done a good job at getting them to communicate when they're in the lesson and we're doing a whole group or we're um, doing finishing up and they're sharing, but communicating the process. I think I take them through the process. They're not really communicating. So I want to build a classroom that's more um, fosters more of that, um, how they work through the process. Um, I was reading a, a, um, a math professional development and they were talking about um, getting kids past their frustration level by allowing them to be frustrated um, and allowing them to, to maneuver through it and communicating and, and them communicating how they maneuver through it. So that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. That is exactly how you build grit in a child. And I, that is, yes. oh, I'm so happy you just shared that. That is something I'm definitely going to, keep thinking about and, and maneuvering through too. That's wonderful. Wow. Well, um, yeah, like I said, I'm still, I, I'm still learning like best practices and uh, yeah uh, strategies no, and, and things like that. And so as I read and I research, I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so every year I'm like, yeah, definitely going to try that. So do you have any last words of advice that you would give to teachers about how to balance a wide range of reading levels in their classroom? My advice would be to start off with determining where they are. Um, So the standard tells you what they need to know. You need to find out where they are because it's pointless to teach if you don't, if, and it's pointless to teach if you assume that the students have the foundation already. Assumptions don't help anybody. You're just spinning your wheels. So I would say to figure out where your student is and then develop lessons that fill in those, um, the middle. Um, because what's worked for me in my classroom is a, a great understanding of what the student needs to get them where they are. I create the steps, they just climb them. Um, so mm. that's, that's my advice, to, to, to create the steps for the students to climb. Um, and, and that sounds like a visual scaffolding, but scaffolding doesn't mean anything if you don't understand where the student is. Um, so you can't scaffold if you have no idea where the student is starting from. Um, so know where your student is and know how to, and, and then develop lessons that get them where they need to be. Oh, fantastic. That, that's lovely advice. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Like, Every interaction I have with you, I just walk away so inspired. And I'm going to do a lot more research into visual literacy because I want to do this with my students too. Yeah, I mean, I can email you what I have. I'm still developing. Um, I have a, um, I'm actually doing a presentation for the Georgia Department of oh. Education on visual literacies and addressing ESOL 
and trauma, children with trauma. So that's a great experience. Yes. And I will share send whatever. You, um, thank you. Yeah, I will send you whatever, I, what, what I, what I uh, come up with. Yeah. And um, you're on Twitter, right? Our listeners can find you on Twitter. Yes. And I will include, I will put my link at the, in the comments. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Yeah. We'll put all of her information in our show notes because I know that our listeners have learned a great deal and I hope that everyone does feel so inspired. I definitely do um, because it is possible to change your classroom and reach your learners and make a big difference. Um, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting yeah, me. Yeah, we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you um, come next year too and talk about what you're doing with the conferencing and also just some of the assessments that you use to get to know your. Oh, absolutely. I would love to. That. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs>